does anybody have anything to bring up from last week? Okay, I do. <laughs> I I was uh, we had this conversation. I mean, I'm not really quite sure how prominent it was in the um, evening, but I we I was raising the question of what is the relationship between time and suffering. Um, I don't remember which of his um, things brought it forward, or whether it was just random. But this, you know, everybody always says, "Oh, you know, you'll feel better after a while." You know, you're suffering now, but, you know, in a few months you'll feel fine. And I don't know, from, this, from a spiritual point of view, that just, it was hardly, it was difficult for me. Because it's just like, what, do you actually gain anything if you just merely outlast it? And Swami had that image that he would have about meeting karma at the crest instead of just essentially staying the same size and waiting till it dissipates and then you say you've, mastered it, but all you've done is just wait till it's smaller than your present consciousness. You haven't actually expanded your awareness to meet meet things. And even just the the dynamic of what actually happens, what happens to, to, to suffering over time, is it just that we're so dull in our natures and have such short memories that other memories come in and start inserting themselves and we just can't sustain the connection to the original cause. I mean, I know that's not always true. I was reading a woman talking about when you lose a child, you never get over it. You live on, but you never get over it, is how she put it. And I don't know if that's true or not, because I've never in this lifetime experienced that. But I started having a different... I, I was reading, I've been reading The Imitation of Christ, which is a Thomas, Thomas Akempis book. It's a classic and it's a very interesting, I've had it for years and I've never been able to read it. It just it never interested me. And recently it's been very dynamic. And there's a lot in there about uh, suffering. Um, but it's actually exceedingly subtle. And I didn't really understand how subtle it was before, so that's why I didn't like it. But um, it speaks of... It, 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 there's a constant theme in that little book, which is, uh, I mean, it is a, it's a scripture. And Swami gave me this copy, so I mean, I say that also because he, he bought it for me and gave it to me, so I know he endorsed it. Um, the master, the master did too. Um, and it, 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 it's talking about humility, and it's talking about detaching yourself from the pride of identification and defining yourself and understanding that, that the ego itself is really not the causative force, that it's always God coming through us and that the whole project on the spiritual path is to become conscious of God's energy and to identify only with God's energy and not always with our own. So the whole idea of, of temptation and suffering is offered there as a constant reminder to us that unless we are being sustained by the divine, we, we really have no chance all on our own. <laughs> and I was actually remembering, um, Heidi, as it happens, you were the one who said it, about people who, who go through the 12 steps or go through an addiction process and 
and you said, and I'll take your word for it because I don't know these things, that everyone who, who eventually hits bottom and starts coming up, that there's a point in which, at which grace steps in and rescues you. Whether you call it grace or not, whatever it is, that the actual cessation of suffering is not, I've gotten over it, but that God has taken it away from me. So I was beginning to understand that suffering over time can be, I think, one of two ways. One is, I, I outlast it, time passes, my ability to sustain my, the experience is just not as great as the uh, wearing effect of having lots of other experiences, and it just gets farther away, and then I'm over it. But I haven't really learned anything. I've just outlasted it. And the, the other way of transcending suffering is to learn something, which is really to take your consciousness and see something from a new perspective in which it, it just simply no longer affects you in the same way. We watched Swami for so many years um, struggle with the constant um, uh, attacks of people he loved against him. And he, he, he himself talked about a time, a shift in his consciousness where he, there was a point at which he affirmed that he loved the people who were mistreating him. And then there was a time when he simply loved them. And at one point he was disciplining himself and he was capable of disciplining himself. But at another point, his, his entire perception of reality had shifted to, to, to such an extent that there was no discipline involved anymore. It was just spontaneously what his consciousness was. Now, that would be to triumph over it. That wouldn't be merely to outlast it. And so part of the suffering over time and the way that time can heal you is that, that your consciousness changes by, by having to uh, constantly exercise your willpower against temptation. And, you know, we think of temptation as the temptation to do something that we would consider pleasurable, but uh, temptation is also the temptation to be sad. Every time you fall into a mood, Master says, Satan has a hold of you. And... Uh, I remember a woman, uh, when her husband died, she was talking about the temptation um, to be sad, she said, was almost more than she could resist. I mean, she knew that on the deepest spiritual level, there was simply no reason to be sad. Her husband had died. He was ill, and it was a release for him. But the temptation, and that's how she saw it, which was instead of holding her consciousness where it needed to be, she was tempted to have it drop. So suffering is a temptation. Um, someone, uh, Karen was talking about Ananda Ma, who was a very unusual saint in many of the ways that she responded. And um, unlike Master or Ramakrishna, who, when those people who were close to them died, they... they expressed a whole gamut of emotions. I mean, Master wasn't, you know, wailing by the uh, tomb, but he nonetheless, te- he, he cried when, his, when Gyanamata died. It, it, was, it was a tender thing for him. Ananda Ma, when her own brother died, just, there was absolutely no change. It's just like he was here and now he's not. 
I mean, there was no, she saw no reason to grieve. It was just simply a shift in circumstances. What, what, where is there, what is there to grieve about? So, and when it, when, when it would be someone like her, you would understand that this was not any kind of a pretense. This was simply her consciousness. It's just you were in the body or out of the body. What, what is the big deal here? Why are you taking this so hard? And that's what Swami's comment once to someone when they were in a difficult circumstance. He just said, why are you taking this so hard? And, and it wasn't even a criticism. It was a serious question. Why are you taking this so hard? This is just a change in circumstances. What is this about? So suffering over time can also be this, this constant um, honing of your willpower and of your um, ability to resist that temptation, but to see things from the highest level. And uh, that can be the conquest that suffering over time can bring. Or, and this is so much more mysterious, which is the angels rescue you. God rescues you. You you just don't quit. You do your best. And at a certain point, the karmic balance is such that the divine takes mercy on you. And, And then it just turns over. And that victory may not have the same power if it comes too quickly. Think, I mean, just think about it. It's, it's similar, but although not exactly the same, but think about the story of St. Anthony in the desert where he was in the tomb for, what, 80 years meditating and then the devil was tempting him and the devil was going to smash the tomb and kill him and he was having to talk about suffering, you know, fight against whatever that was, the, the, the devil declaring to him if he didn't repudiate his faith that he was going to crash the tomb down and Anthony had to stay there and finally Jesus appears. And as Master tells the story, Anthony says, Lord, where were you? A natural question. And Jesus said, I was always the same with you. I was always here. But he didn't reveal himself. And it's, it's that, that's the story of the saints. You don't quite know what to do with it. I mean, in the temptation of Christ, they refer to that really often. Of course, they refer to the teachings of Jesus about just sometimes you're suffering and sometimes you're not suffering and for the the lover of God it's all the same and God will give you suffering and God will take away your suffering then he'll give it back and you need to just be very humble even-minded and persevere recognize that this is it's not my ego my ego is not the causative force here I'm always in the hands of God so and, and, you know, suffering over time develops a tremendous amount of patience. Sri Yukteswar, I think it was, who described, defined tapasya, which is that wonderful word of, we call it sometimes austerity and sometimes devotion, although I think devotion is not exactly the right translation of it. But Sri Yukteswar described it as patience. So that was very interesting. I mean, tapasya is simply patience. I mean, it's that something is happening that has to be endured. And if, it's, if you're going to do it as real tapasya, you just endure it patiently. I mean, you can suffer without doing tapasya in the sense of gaining from it. You know, doing tapasya in the sense that they talk about, I'm doing penance in order to gain the power to do something or another. I mean, in the Mahabharata, periodically, one or the other of the heroes would go off and do tapasya for a while. So they'd get power... And sometimes it would come in the way one of the gods would be so impressed, he'd give him a boon. But there was always, there was some 
some um, disciplined focus was required in order to get the power back. And so often we have to just be patient. Tapasya is just patience that it's not yet time and I need to use my energy to build my power so that I can attract grace because there's always in the end if you're really attuned on the spiritual level there, it, there is just this sensation that I was just the same and then God rescued me you, you don't really get that there's no point at which you actually fixed it it's that you didn't quit and then God fixed it and this is what as again the temptation of Christ they keep talking about just having that um, connectedness enough with the spirit so that you can just you, you, don't, you don't mistake the grace of God for your own egoic action so anyway I, I, that was important for me to figure out because I don't think it's sufficient when you're challenged just not to die I mean you just to live long enough until it becomes old news that just doesn't seem to me like enough it, it, it will happen it happens to almost everyone well unless they become as I was talking about it, I think last time they develop such a complex about it that it never goes away but still I think for devotees more is asked of us um, we have to, we have to get, really gain otherwise we're just passing time Okay, any comments or questions about that? All right, we are now on conversation number 40. And number 40 is all about the yugas. And it's a very nice and interesting description of the yugas. It was, as it happened, I'm simultaneously reading Religion in the New Age, which is also a very interesting discussion of the yugas. Certainly, I didn't know that. Talking about patience. Your uh, Teshwara's definition of tapasya. Uh-huh. Uh, I came to think of it largely as uh, uh, really open-hearted acceptance. Finally, and to the extent you can accept it transparently and completely, it's quite a. It's what you should be doing. Yeah, exactly. So. Exactly. Yeah, patience is acceptance. I mean, there's a, an element of acceptance in patience. You're not trying to make things different than they are. You're just patiently waiting working, whatever it might be. Yes, exactly. Okay. So this is a very long reading, and since it has been my habit to read them out loud, I'll just read for a while, and then we'll stop and comment. Um, Number 40. The history of the world is very different from the version official archaeology presents. As Swami Sri Teshwar Yogananda's guru explained, the earth passes through great cycles of time as the solar system's position changes relative to our galactic center and to certain so-called fixed stars. The galaxy itself rotates very slowly, if 170 miles a second can be called slow, over a period of 200 million years. The sun, again, as Sri Yukteswar explained, moves in orbit around a dual. The dual has yet to be discovered by modern astronomy. But so many other facts he claimed have been verified since his book, The Holy Science, was published in 1894, that one would be safe, I believe, in accepting his explanation in its entirety. The time required for the sun to orbit around its dual is, Sri Yukteswar stated, approximately 24,000 years. The general level of human consciousness changes according to the sun's position during this orbit 
relative to both its dual and the galactic center. Swami Sri Yukteswar found by careful study and also by deep intuitive perception that major errors had crept into the Hindu almanacs during a time when the earth was passing through the darkest of four ages called Kali Yuga. During that period, human awareness was, was at its dimmest. We are now ascending again, he said, toward increasingly clear understanding and sensitivity. This fascinating claim corresponds with many more recently discovered facts in astronomy and physics, and also with known facts of human history. The whole concept cannot be explained here at length, for it is incidental to the subject of this book. But it is important enough to our theme to merit at least a brief explanation. It figured largely, though sometimes only as a backdrop, in what Master taught. For more information, the reader is referred to Sri Yukteswar's book, The Holy Science, and to Paramhansa Yogananda's Autobiography of a Yogi. Vyasa Steinmetz is also writing a whole book on the subject, so that book is now published. Um, it's called The Yugas by Steinmetz and Selby, and it's a great book. And Swami also published Religion in the New Age. And uh, in the first essay in that book, there's also a, a very good discussion of the yugas. So there's more sources on this, because in the holy science it's quite truncated, and so is it in autobiography. Suffice it here, then, to point out a few of the many corroborations of Sri Yukteswar's discovery in terms of mankind's increasing awarenesses. These include... Now, just before I want to go there, I want to just say a few other things about the yugas. It's um, another reason why the yugas are extremely important to the study of self-realization is this, that, that part of what we're, we're trying to work out as devotees is to find a way to have courageous, even-minded, and cheerful peaceful acceptance of the, of the universe that we live in. And most of us, or I would say everyone, who comes to the point where they become a devotee on the spiritual path has developed, you know, compassion uh, and sensitivity and a certain tender-hearted concern um, for others, for other conscious beings, whether animals, plants, earth elements, whatever, and especially other people. So one of the uh, traditional obstacles to uh, accepting the world as God's will is that the world is such a mess. <laughs> and and you, you really want to, to make something happen. I, I don't know if I mentioned that... Uh, did I mention about the man who accosted me after Sunday service two weeks ago? And just how impossible it was to get his attention off of the fact that people are suffering and we all have to do something about it. And that um, determination on his part um, made him completely unable to comprehend a single word that I was saying to him. Just, it just, and in fact, he, he said himself that when I said the word Israel in my sermon, even though I didn't say anything other really than just the word Israel, it derailed him completely from everything else I said because it sent him into a, a, a cycle of uh, anguish over, from his point of view, 
the atrocities the Israelis have committed against the Palestinians and the Arabs. That was his perspective on it, you know. And uh, and and so we, we're always looking at this world around us and trying to understand, you know, what is the right attitude to have. And much more than we realize, we we take on certain assumptions just because it's the world we've lived in, and especially as Westerners, um, the whole concept of the yugas was completely new to us, although in India there is this deeply held belief that it's Kali Yuga descending for 400,000 years. And when I um, have, have taught over there and I just present, because it's part of the flow of things to mention that this is a Dwapara ascending, afterwards I was talking to some Indian man and said, basically, what do you think when I say that? Oh, I just think you're wrong, he said. <laughs> I said, do most everyone think I'm wrong? He said, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, so de- it's such a deeply held point of view. And Sri Yukteswar says, quite simply, we went through a very dark age and that false information got started and it just hasn't been corrected yet. Um, he, he corrected it, but not everybody's listening yet. But to really understand and really comprehend what the yugas are about. And this is another thing that happened during this week. Because these talks are posted, every so often I get comments. And uh, Ron is very conscientious every few days or every week or so. He gathers them up and he sends them to me. So last week I made that mention about the cultures of indigenous peoples being um, uh, uh, disappearing at this point. And I, I was talking a little bit about Native Americans, and I have a, a great um, karmic connection with the Native American peoples. It's not, it was more active when I was younger, but there was a period of time when I had, uh, I had a number of those noble faces, you know, it, it, that I would see, look at every day, because it was so, such a powerful thing for me. That was when I was living more in the woods myself, so there was, uh, it, was, it was activated. Swami Kriyananda said that many of the uh, young white people in the 60s and 70s who went out and went back to the land were, were reincarnated Native Americans who were born into families with enough money so they could go buy their land back. <laughs> that was exactly what he said. <laughs> he just took the money and just bought it back. As white people, we bought it back from the ones who had taken it away from us. It's very complicated. So I got a, a comment and a thoughtful comment uh, from a man who has Native American ancestry and, and just found what I was saying deeply offensive because it, it sounds, it can sound unsympathetic, callous. I'm not, um, I did say last week that it, Master said America got very bad karma for that and that bad karma still hasn't been paid off because it was, it was really, we behaved in a way that's inexcusable. But nonetheless, there is a difference between sympathy and sentiment, sentimentality. And it's a very difficult line, because you can be very sympathetic to something, but, that, but still be able to stand back and see it in an objective flow. But sentimentality sort of blinds you to the ability to have an objective flow because we, we just feel sentimental about it. We just, we have a, a bias in favor of it. You know, I have a slight bias in favor of Judaism that I have to 
sort of work with at different times. I have to always be able to stand back. I remember talking to an Ananda person who just had been a, you know, a political liberal and an active political liberal. And it was just amazing to me the extent to which that very fine mind inside that devotee's body was not sharp when it came to that, which they had a sentimental attachment to from their upbringing. And, and just the reasoning, I'm not, I'm not saying that liberal or conservative politics, I don't really care, but it was just interesting to me how sentiment blinded you one, blinds one to just actually perceiving things as they are. So we can look at the world around us and we can draw many different conclusions, but the primary thing we have to see is there's a bigger flow happening here and someone else is in charge. And even though bad things happen and there's just no way that you can justify much of what goes on, nonetheless... There's, it's, it's, it's interesting from an impersonal point of view. And you can have an impersonal point of view and still have great sympathy for all that's happening inside of it. And the yugas is one of the things that makes that possible because you can just be very impersonal about it. This is my little mantra, which I say often. This is the beginning of Dwapara Yuga. And there are going to be certain vibratory conditions because of the overall level of consciousness. We can rail against that as much as we want. We can weep, we can campaign, we can scream. This is early Dwapara. And early Dwapara, when you take a teaching like this, early Dwapara has certain characteristics and global consciousness can only rise to a certain point. Individual consciousness can become infinite. And that's why even he says it. it's sort of a backdrop. And the interesting thing about the yugas, it's very important to realize this, this is, a, this is a phenomenon of the physical world. We're not talking about the astral body, astral plane, and we're not even talking about astrology. We're talking about astronomy. This is a physical relationship of the physical planet to the physical center of the galaxy and the rays of energy that come and therefore the, the uh, power of the life force that receives that energy. But the drama of the soul going through its many incarnations and its process of moving towards self-realization, which is, you might say, within ourselves, going from Kali to Satya Yuga in our, in our inner consciousness, we can be at any stage of consciousness which we are capable of being in on any planet during any yuga. And it's very important to keep those two things separate. So you just can't make, you know, you, you can't make the physical world different than it is. But then you have to stand back one more time and say, well, who made the physical world and why did he make it like he made it? And Swami touches that in a few minutes in this same reading. But you, can, you see how important it is? So it's something, it's something really important to understand in much of what distresses people about society as a whole, the actual and only answer to it is the yugas. I mean, let me phrase it differently, there's also individual karma, which is also a tough teaching, extremely tough teaching. But, but for the world as a whole, the only, the only way you can actually understand it is with the yugas. And once you really fully comprehend it, it just becomes a fascinating lens through which to view things. Chris. 
I had a conversation with this about about this with someone the other day too, and he was having a hard time understanding the backdrop concept uh-huh. that humanity itself, in, in my view, I'm, these are my words, is not really a thing. Humanity it, it's a, a thing. It's a collection of thousands of individuals, each with their own path, incarnating at a certain time on a certain planet because it's the right place and time for them to be. But we want, as a society, to see society progress. Yes, you know, it's, exactly. it's a factor of this time in this yuga that we see a progression potential. We want to see it going when it doesn't, when it stumbles, when it falters. We identify vicariously with that faltering and we forget that it's really the individual consciousnesses that are evolving and with all yes. the bumps and everything. Yeah. And so that for me, just to remind people when they stumble on that, is that humanity's not really a thing. No. It doesn't it's not necessary that humanity as a whole progresses. It will naturally occur in the conditions that we're in, but it's much more slow than we might wish. And well, it's not even that humanity uh, evolves, it's that a planet becomes more refined and so souls of greater refinement manifest there and then the whole society looks better for a while. For a while and then it goes down And then the it other goes way. down again, yeah. but you're right, nothing humanity has done nothing. The way I think of it sometimes is that in all of creation there are all different possible vibrations. And as Master says in I think in this when you come from the astral world, because that was the question, do you always come back to Earth? No, he says, when you come from the astral world to the material plane, back to the material plane, you have many different planets to choose from. And so it's time for you to reincarnate, and there's some kind of vibratory, am I a Kali or an early Dwapara or a Satya Yuga uh, cycle, Tandavanitsa cycle right now, and then somehow in this great cosmos because time and space don't really exist on that plane, you get sucked to the right planet. And then when you're coming to that planet, am I a Jew, an Arab, an Irishman, a, a Christian, a Muslim? Uh, am I rich? Am I poor? Do I have a, And so then there's all those different vibrations. Am I German? Am I Italian? You know, what kind of vibration do I need to move into? And all of those things coalesce. But there, it's the, the Sabbath was made for man. It's like the whole of creation is set up so that the individual souls will have the opportunities that they need in order to progress. And there's no, it's, no, it's no end in itself. That's very hard for people to comprehend. That's the backdrop theory. Yes. Talk so it seems like there is still um, some reality to the larger unit of societies because there's still mass karma. Yes, exactly. That's true. No, that's true. That's the... That's the conditions into which the soul um, comes into. And you take on the mass karma. If you're in Israeli, you're taking on the Israeli karma. If you're a Palestinian, you're taking on the Palestinian karma. And that collective karma is the vibration that's held in the universe. That it's a continuing cycle. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a measurable cause and effect over time in the course of this planet. You're on Atlantis and you happen to be on Atlantis when it sinks because that's where you need to be. And it sinks because of all the accumulated actions that have created a karmic condition. The earth itself, um, I, I, I didn't accept this, but Swami said, of course the earth is conscious. And of course there's a ruling deity for earth itself. So just like somebody's running the United States, there's some being that's actually running planet earth. And so it's not that it doesn't have a destiny. It's just that what Chris was speaking of is 
people think that humanity as some kind of a, a freestanding entity apart from the individual destiny of every soul that humanity itself is going to evolve and that's that's what it's hard to get your mind around if there's mass karma i mean there's this american karma that we got that's bad for uh, for being so horrible to the Native Americans that maybe someday something will happen to us and it'll expiate that karma. And, I mean, there are changes. It seems like well, what th- there, there could still be evolution if there's mass karma. There's, like- there's evolution in the concept of the yugas. But, but America, let me, let me just try to say it this way. There is a karmic pattern called America. And partly we learn... You know, we as individual jivas learn, to a certain extent we may actually be re- even reincarnating in the same situation for a while. Like, the masters are able to say, this country has good karma, this country has bad karma. They're able to teach us, we're able to learn things by absor- ob- observing the conditions in which we're living and the consistent, observable karmic pattern that a country has or so on like that is part of how we learn and so therefore it is established in an orderly manner. It's not that it's not orderly but America will never as America become liberated and humanity will never all finish and, be, and become perfect because there's no such thing. Just individual souls will gradually learn and then in some way that I can't possibly comprehend new souls will come. And America, after it expiates the American Indian karma, for example, Master said, we'll go into a period of great prosperity and peace. And then um, people who don't match that karma won't incarnate there anymore. Does that, does that make sense? Okay. I find myself always wanting to go back to Master's movie analogy. I mean, there's just a scene called America, and it's got a certain thing that it has to do, and certain actors have to come and play that part out until it's done, and then the actors move to Israel, and then they move to... You know, but there's deities that are running each of them. Yeah. Swami tells that strange story of uh, uh, India and China, and I'm trying to think what the, how, what the context was, how he got that story, but someone told it to him, and it... Yeah, the Chinese War, and that the, the deity in charge of China came to the deity in charge of India and said, basically, my boys are getting restless, and I'm going to have to let them invade. And then the Indian deity says, well, okay, but only to this certain latitude or line. And he said they, they invaded, and they came right to that point, and there was absolutely no reason why they didn't go any farther, but then they turned around and went home. <laughs> and it was just like the... Deities were facilitating the karma of the jivas who were occupying that country and allowing it, but they're all working together. It's, it's fascinating when you think of it, like that they're all working together too, that this karma has to be worked out. So let's see how we can work it out, but then this, it has to be balanced by this karma and everybody has to be allowed to learn the lessons they have to learn. But the end of it is not that we all finally get it perfect because it'll only it'll get better and better on this planet until but who knows if there'll be an America or any of it by that point because by Satya Yuga everything changes 
Does that, I mean, have we got that? Because it's a very, it's all very interesting and very complicated. Yes. So when we say a ruling deity for, for the earth or the, our country, how is that different from the collective mass consciousness? It's, we are talking about the same thing. Well, it's Swamiji's, no, no, we're not talking about that. Okay. We're actually talking about, as I understand it, yeah, an individual, an actual individual. Swamiji Master said that like the deities, like Shiva and those other deities, he said they, they actually exist and that individual souls become Shiva for a while. Swami described it as like the king of England, which is always there, but it's not always the same soul. And so you can imagine very advanced beings that you're, you know, just like you're in charge of your little office and a few people who are in it, and you become a very advanced soul and that you're in charge of America. I'm asking this as a question, but I, I, it's, it's an angelic being of, of advanced consciousness who has a certain responsibility. Everything happens through instruments. It's, it's the universe we see here is a reflection of a higher order as, a, as, as below, so above. Does that, is that... What I'm trying to understand is, maybe you did answer this, I'm still not getting it fully. So the earth itself is conscious as a being. Well, I, I, that was... This is a conversation I had with Swami, because I used to just say, oh no, of course not. And then he just looked at me and said, of course it's a conscious being. Of course it's conscious. I think so today. Yeah, right. Uh, Earth being a, so I'm trying to understand if Earth as a conscious being is different from the deity that is in charge of Earth. Well, but I don't. But if Earth is not a jiva that can become self-realized. Mm-hmm. So it, it it was more like there's. This is what we talked about last week. Every the whole universe is teeming with consciousness. So the the Earth is conscious in the sense that it responds to magnetic influences, that it isn't an inert thing, and this is where. You know, the tides will shift, the weather will shift, there'll be earthquakes because mankind is sending out dissonant energy and that dissonant energy is affecting the magnetic patterns. And there's a deity who's kind of running all that. These are the reasons you're not getting it clearly for me is because I don't have it very clearly. But but when I said... So I mean, we were watching the... Um, we were watching a very interesting documentary about crop circles. It was called Star Dreams, with a, a Z at the end of the word dreams. There's a lot of documentaries. This was particularly good. Um, crop circles are, are just breathtakingly beautiful when you really see, see them in pictures or in, in movies. They're just, and you, and you, you don't, they are, they're so clearly a communication and they're so clearly a symbol and there's so clearly an elevated communication. It's just startling. And somehow Swamiji heard about them and he was sharing this documentary with all of us. And then we were having a discussion about the possible explanations for what this is. Whether it is communication from some more advanced planet that's trying to talk to us. Or whether it's the earth itself putting out its message, essentially from the heart of Earth that it's coming up, or if it's coming from outer space down. And that was the point at which I asked the question about Earth being conscious. And I had to confess wholly that I had been quite 
unsupportive of that idea when people said it to me. And then Swami corrected me, of course the earth is conscious. But it, it doesn't mean that it's a conscious, that it's a jiva. And then, of course, there, there are angelic beings, devas, in charge of earth, who, who have the power to make a crop circle if it was their choice. So the idea that the devas, the angelic beings in charge of earth, could be creating the crop circles is one possibility, that it could be created by the projection of thought from a much more advanced civilization on another planet. You can see those are two explanations. And he was proposing both of them. And I was just thinking of how many people I'd misled with things I'd said in the past. <laughs> but I'd, who could decide? Yes? A Findhorn book. I don't know if you've read anything of Findhorn. As Findhorn was beginning to develop, the overlighting deity was beginning to form. It was just something that was said in that book. And I thought, what does the, that mean? The, you mean the, the, the deity that was going to be in charge of Findhorn was yes. manifesting as Findhorn was manifesting? Right. Well, that would make sense, in a sense. I mean, everything starts on the causal plane. So the very idea of manifesting Findhorn must have been existent on the causal plane and conceivably projected by angelic beings. And Peter and Eileen Caddy picked it up. I mean, we, we think of Master projecting the thoughts to us, and Swami Kriyananda picked it up, but angelic beings are helping us all the time. I mean, that's, uh, it's, not, it's not just the gurus. The gurus have many instruments, and those instruments are also angels who are whispering music in our ear. Uh, at many I mean, these are things that I understand are how things work. I'm not, I'm not a person who can tell you how many there are and what they look like and what color their auras are. But in principle, that would be how it would work. And Swami had a very interesting experience in Findhorn, actually, because Findhorn became very dedicated to the nature devas, and they started doing remarkable things with um, food, uh, uh, growing things, and grew big cauliflowers in the snow and stuff like that. When Swami, in uh, about 1972, I think it was about 1972, when he took a trip around the world, he went to Findhorn and there was a big conference there and he was invited there and he had a very difficult time speaking there and he felt there was an actual force against him being able to speak and he, he said this and he said in that for he felt that force the whole time he was there and it wasn't until he left and got some miles away that he felt it leave and he felt that the devas um, had gotten kind of swelled heads from all the admiration that they were getting there at Findhorn and were quite puffed up with themselves and they didn't like Swami being there because his teaching was going to be more important than them. And he really felt them fighting against him. I mean, that was his explanation. Swami's not prone to articulate things unless he believes them to be true, but he said he just felt that. He said they, they minded it less when he sang. <laughs> They were more accepting of his singing, but they really didn't like him to talk because he was, they were afraid that he was going to deflect energy away from... Because nature, da nature devas, that's what I was looking for. Nature devas are important, but they're not everything. Uh, Hanel Cassidy, who was about as logical and solid a man as you can imagine, he was the man, the older man, older. He was, he was younger than me when I thought he was old, when, younger than I am now. And, but he, he seemed old to us when he came to Ananda 
and trained our gardeners, and he trained them in the Rudolf Steiner methods, which are very metaphysical. And when I was at the farm with um, Shivani, and she was trained by Hanel 30 or 40 years ago, there was a lot of yarrow plant at the farm, our farm, Ananda Valley farm, and it reminded her, and she said, Hanel said every farm needs five plants because the devas that are, re- that are involved with those plants, they all need to be there. One of them was yarrow. She couldn't remember it, but she could only remember two. One was yarrow, but the other was a mulberry bush. And this is what Hanel taught her. But the mulberry bush has to be a little separate from all the other plants because that's where the queen of the fairies lives and she doesn't like to live in the same neighborhood as the others. I mean, it's just a fact. I don't know whether we do or not. I don't know whether whether um, Ananta still follows this or not. But she just Shivani just said that so matter of factly. That's where the queen of the fairies lives, and she doesn't like to live with the hoi polloi. <laughs> but meaning these these beings have personalities and egos, and so Swami said the devas have egos. They're beings with egos. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Master puts in well, Sri Teshwar who puts in fairies and mermaids and all that in the resurrection. There it is. Why not? Okay, moving right along. Shall we? Okay. Um, um, he said there are very cor- various corroborations of Sri Teshwar's discovery in terms of mankind's increasing awareness. And then he articulates and he lists out um, seven of them. And these are the signs that, that it's Dwapara and these are also the characteristics that Master is responding to and building on. And that, that, that's why these are also important for us to understand, because this, this is what we're working with. One, man's ever-broadening perception of the universe, which before the 20th century was limited to a relatively small star system, of which our own sun was, until the 1920s, considered the center. In other words, just the concept of the universe was very small. That's why... God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And we have Jesus Christ appearing here. Everybody was doomed to hell until Jesus was born. But now that Jesus is here, we're, we're all okay. And from a certain perspective on the universe, that's just impossible to understand. But it's, it's, it's a Kali Yuga concept um, understood in the materialistic way that people understand that. Symbolically, it means quite something else, but that just literally God had one son, and it was Jesus, and Jesus was born in a physical body on this planet, and until then, everybody was damned to hell. As somebody put it, there was no revelation before or after him. And, you know, Swami takes that apart quite strongly in his revelations of Christ before reconstructing a different understanding. But in a tiny universe in which we're we're it, um, we are one planet, and... You know, one Savior comes. Makes perfect sense. Nothing happened before, nothing happened after. Number two, the discovery at the beginning of the 20th century that matter is a vibration of energy and people's growing awareness and acceptance since then of that fact. You know, we take it almost for granted now that matter is a vibration of energy, but that was a big thing to have happen. Three, man's rapidly increasing ability to banish space by rapid travel and instant communication, a capacity that has been increasing exponentially since the beginning of the 20th century. 
I mean, again, we just take this for granted. I mean, the generation that's growing up just takes it completely for granted. You know, email, talking, instant email is even too slow, instant messaging, you know, talking in real time on Facebook and all of that. That's just how you do it. It doesn't matter where on the planet you are. I remember when America was bombing Yugoslavia for some reason. And young people were talking on email at that point. And so someone in America, I mean, I heard that this was actually, someone in America whose father was in the airplane bombing was talking to someone in Yugoslavia who was being bombed. I mean, it's just, how, how and you can see that's the beginning of the end of the capacity to make war. But such a thing was literally inconceivable. But you see how then everything has to start turning over at that point, and that's, uh, that's where Dwapara comes from. Number four, people's growing awareness since the development of radio communication and airplane travel and man's ability to leave the atmosphere of the earth and move into outer space, that our planet is relatively small and that we need to find ways of living together in global harmony. And just think about how much people talk about that now. And because of all this instant communication, and we're perceiving things that we just didn't know before, that when they take down trees in South America, it has effect in the weather in some other place. And certainly when the Japanese nuclear plant begins to go into chaos, then you have an increase in cancer in the West Coast of America or wherever it is. You know, just all these different things that we, can no, we no longer have the luxury of saying, well, what I do is none of your business. So we, we have to expand our sympathies. We have to expand our concept of everything. Number three, and these are all promises for the future because we're not there yet. Three, um, a five I mean, the rapid increase in human awareness, especially since the start of the 20th century, of realities, radio and television waves, for example, that are subtler than sensory perception. Just 200 years ago, that was just... Un- inconceivable. How could you send sound through the air? How could you look at pictures of people who are in New York? I mean, and even now, none of us, I mean, certainly speaking for myself, I have no idea how it's done. I just know perfectly well it's done. And you, now you're, with whatever the systems are, you're, I, I'm with Shivani and I'm riding in a taxi on our way to Ramana Maharshi's ashram in the south of India. And she's finishing her movie project, you know, on the internet with her little machine there and we're bouncing along on these Indian roads and she's emailing to Los Angeles to, you know, and finishing all her work before we get there. And where is that? How is it happening? But I just take for granted that these things can just be sent out. I mean, and there's no wires. (laughs) It's just, there's no physical concept, it's just transferred somehow. But there it is, and nobody doubts it because it's demonstrated. Number six, a growing dissatisfaction with anything that merely seems reasonable, but that lacks the support of either experience or experiment, and an increasing tendency to challenge all a priori assumptions and dogmas. And that has really been the beginning and the end of institutional religion. And number seven, an awareness rapidly becoming worldwide 
that the goal of all religions is personal enlightenment rather than some merely outward social upliftment. Okay, that's a critical one. But let's take a little break before we come back to it. So I wanted to go back for just a moment to the two, that, the last ones, especially the last one. Um, an awareness rapidly becoming worldwide that the goal of all religions is personal enlightenment rather than mere outward social upliftment. This is also part of this ourselves beginning to understand that uh, that, the, that the key to everything is consciousness. And, that, and that's one of the things that gradually comes in this age is that it's not really what you're doing, it's the consciousness with which you're doing it. And you see, even religion itself has been more of a social institution. And, and even, well, that's the even though still lit on the altar of good works, the noble taper of inner communion burns low and is ill-attended. So we're not... um, People are thinking that the job of religion is to help the people who are suffering, whereas our whole point of view is that the job of religion is to lift our consciousness. And then we may also do many things, but lifting your consciousness in and of itself is the best way to serve. And that it's a very different way of thinking about it, which is why, you know, we are not so big on all the social things that happened. We were uh, part of a minister's, uh, count, lo- local minister's group for many years, and, you know, they, they spent a lot of time on uh, p- putting together a, an, ecumenically, an ecumenical venture of taking care of the homeless and just all these different things. That was the whole orientation of, of everyone's um, activities was one way or another it had to be engaged in social service and that's how the ministers defined their job that's how they trained their congregations everything we managed they, they respected us actually it was very interesting they respected us as contemplatives that's how they saw it in their minds that we were contemplatives and therefore we were doing something different. It wasn't that we weren't doing anything good. We were just doing something very different. Um, but it was no, very notable. We stood alone in that in that context. And just a correction, it's not the mulberry bush, it's an elderberry bush. Romani reminded me. I knew mulberry wasn't right, but I couldn't remember. It's an elderberry bush. That's where the fairy lives. fairy was really upset about that. I remember Kalyani when she first lived at Ananda Village with her son Prem. Um, she lived in a converted um, shed, and people would say it was a converted chicken coop. No, she said it was a converted pheasant shed. <laughs> it was very important that she lived in a better neighborhood than the chicken coops. <laughs> so, fairies too. All right, moving right along. The descending dark age of Kali Yuga lasted 1,200 years, ending in the year 500 AD. It was succeeded by an an ascending dark age, the same Yuga in reverse, lasting another 1,200 years. Um, This ascending Kali Yuga ended in the year 1700 AD, since when there have been countless developments throughout the world, including the following. When you hear um, Vyasa's presentation about the Yugas and um, I can't remember if it's put forth so dramatically in the book that um, he wrote with Puru, but um, 
I remember when Biasa would was giving his presentation before the book was published, and he would every so often do this marvelous seminar. And he he would he would show us coming down to 500, and he would give us all these historical things, and how this wave of barbarians swept through and burned all of this, and this wave of barbarians swept through and did this, and this wave of barbarians, and basically everything of refinement, education, understanding, knowledge that had been built up was just systematically pillaged and burned to the ground. Libraries were burned and just everything. And this is how the um, the misunderstandings grew up, even in the Indian culture, which has been continuous rather than broken like other cultures have been. Still, everything just went down to a lower level. And um, when we were in Israel uh, a month ago, and looking at various things and hearing the accepted archaeological explanation of everything. And I'm not very good with piles of old rocks. I don't have a real clear concept of what I'm dealing with. But when you looked at these, these are not the pyramids of Egypt, but we were looking at these massive stone structures with these huge stones all put together in these beautiful ways. And you just think there has to be other explanations. And you realize that everything that's being said about what's true is being said after the nadir of Kali Yuga. And so you really wonder how much is really valid. And, and there's a, there was a place that we went to somewhere, up um, somewhere. <laughs> And it was, it was somewhere in Israel. It was, and it was a, a, a canyon wall, and it had been a, a shrine, of, of at various times, pagan shrine and this kind of a shrine. And they had all these explanations of what was going on there, but, and much of it was very pagan and very, um, oh, there was about goats and things like that. It just, I mean, it was just like, but we, but it was a magnificent place. And it was just so unlikely that its actual origin had to do with sacrificing goats. But nobody had any way of knowing because all of those understandings were wiped out. What, um, what Biasa said is likely to ha- is happening, is happening, and will continue to happen, is if you think of it as a U-shaped curve with the nadir of Kali Yuga right down here, and you know this was when Kali Yuga descending started, and Dwapar ended, and here we are, and we're matching, that as we go up on this side, the knowledge that was available on this side will start coming to us. And so we'll start, we'll start having new explanations, because right now all we can understand is what is, we're capable of understanding. So we look at things, and this is what we perceive. Or discoveries are, things are hidden, literally, and then suddenly they'll be uncovered. There'll be a tidal wave and something will be uncovered. Or somebody will look right at something and see it differently because they're capable of seeing it differently. So that's another part of... I mean, and number, number six, which, of which I'm extremely um, too good at, to challenge all a priori assumptions. I mean, a lot of what was being said to us in Israel, I kept saying, you know, muttering under my breath, how really likely is that? Because I just, I just didn't believe them. I didn't, because of all the knowledge of the yugas, I just didn't believe them. I didn't, didn't make any sense. They were giving us explanations that, uh, I just can't really see it. So, 
that's one of the things that we're doing now is we're learning what we didn't know. Okay, so, so now, since 1700, all these things have happened, including a revolution toward the use of labor-saving machinery and toward private enterprise, which is, I thought was interesting, which is the power of the individual, which replaced a basically agrarian and land-holding or so-called aristocratic society. Number two, the discovery and the increasingly widespread use of electricity. Number three, the growing use of atomic power. Number four, a complete revolution in man's way of thinking and a perception of the universe is no longer earth-centered, but far, far vaster than even a single star system, as well as a perception of reality that is essentially non-personal. That's it's, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? A non-personal reality, that there is no guy who's the Heavenly Father and his wife, the Divine Mother, just sort of doing this all. It's that it's all, it's metaphysics. It's all moving in these uh, completely different impersonal ways. And then five, countless revolutionary discoveries previously unimaginable, including radio, television, electronics, laser surgery, and other breakthroughs in every field, so many indeed that it would be impossible to list them all, even if one tried. And it's so fascinating to me how each one we just take for granted. I haven't worn glasses for about 15 years because I lay down on that, the doctor's bed and I watch this really pretty sort of flashing lights and he fixed the shape of my whatever it was with a laser. So I lay down not being able to read the time across the room and I sat up and I could. I mean, just incredible. And I just took it for granted. Oh, yeah, I'm having laser surgery. Swami Kriyananda had uh, kidney stones, and they, gave, they dissolved them with ultrasound. They put him in a bathtub of water, and they bombarded those kidney stones, and they dissolved them. When, when he had to have that done, he doesn't like uh, to, to, to be put under with anesthesia. But... Um, they, 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 all, they, they, they make you unconscious when they're going to bombard you because they have to just hit the kidney stones and not a whole lot of other stuff. So they, they don't want you to move. But, but Swami was determined that he was not going to have that. We actually had the doctor on the phone to Dr. Peter at Ananda Village, Dr. Peter assuring the doctor that in fact Swami could stay that still and it would be okay. But the doctor would have none of it. And Swami finally just had to give in because there was just no way that he could believe that he could just not have to have that done. But, but then it was just like, oh yeah, they're going to bombard his kidney stones with sound waves and dissolve them into powder so that they'll pass through without any difficulty. And we all just took it for granted. See how quick, think how quickly. I mean, sound waves, you, again, subtler than sensory perception. You can't see them, but there they are, and they affect the material world. What else don't we know? Okay. This new age, named Dwapara Yuga, began in the year 1700. Kali Yuga ended with a hundred-year twilight, or interval between the years of 1600 and 1700, during which time the discoveries of Galileo, Newton, and others were made, heralding already the coming new perceptions. Dwapara began with the 200-year dawn, or interval of adjustment, to the new cosmic rays. It became fully expressed in the year 1900 and will last another 2200 years. The centuries immediately before us will be increasingly characterized by a general awareness of 
and command over the forces of energy. And that's what you see happening step by step. Any other any comments or thoughts? So different from its predecessors is the age we now live in that people's thinking is already being affected on every level of their lives. Realities that once appeared to be fixed and immutable are perceived now as endlessly mutable. It is possible today at least to envision a loaf of bread being dissolved into the energy of which it is a manifestation and re-manifested as a bar of gold. At least we can imagine it in theory. In religion, theology-dominated churches with their rigidly formed systems and dogmas are yielding increasingly to a more flexible view of truth. Um, there's, I hear among clergy a lamentable lack of denominational loyalty <laughs> and that people will come into a town and look for an inspiring church. I mean, just a generation or two ago, I was a Methodist or a Congregational or a Lutheran. You came into town, you joined the Lutheran church. You never thought about visiting them all and seeing which one sounded the best to you because it was a theology, it was a dogma. If I'm this one, I couldn't possibly be that one. And it's... Uh, it's, it's just absolutely freaking out the people who have lived that way that nobody knows what to do with this. Um, Kali Yuga consciousness is gradually fading as night fades to dawn and then daylight. With this change, man is beginning to consider his former anthropomorphic concepts of God as too droll to be taken seriously. Through <laughs> so often, so only has fun with his words. <laughs> He was, you know, he was it's so careful. It's like too droll. It's like not too disrespectful a remark. It was only recently in the 20th century that the Roman Catholic Church forgave Galileo for his claim that the earth moves around the sun rather than the opposite. In 1633, the church had condemned him for heresy. I mean, he was excommunicated, I believe. And then recently, this, I mean, you don't know, you don't know, it's almost too droll to take seriously they all get together and they rescind his excommunication. But they needed to because, because he was excommunicated and he was damned to hell eternally. And they, now that they realize it was an error, they need to get him out of there. <laughs> I mean, I'm presuming, maybe I don't have all the facts right. See, see how we're all just laughing at this? But it's not a, it wasn't a joke. I mean, to be excommunicated was really scary to the people who, to whom it was being done. It really meant exactly what I said. But now the churches, the, the theology dogma-bound church is so caught with the fact that they did this thing, they have to make it right. But people are just like, we're living on, there's so many different um, simultaneous threads going on in a transition age like the one we're in. And it's so insecure because there's just not a unity of consciousness. There's this enormous contradictory energy going back and forth. I mean, above all, you know, we have these utter fanatics who just are absolutely determined that you will die or convert and that everything about Dwapar Yuga is of the devil and must be destroyed. It's, it, that is not funny. And there's power given to, to that force. It's just this... Uh, this is part of the, the bringing in of Dwapar Yuga just as indigenous cultures have, have lost their footing 
uh, as we go toward the reason, the reason that's happening is because part of what happens in a higher age is you have a one-world culture. And that's an important thing to say. Right, even right now, if you go anywhere in the world, it looks the same. You just, you, the, was it Tom Friedman who said that, I think it was that same war when we were bombing Yugoslavia. It was the first time that two countries that both had McDonald's were at war with each other. I mean, it just was a ridiculous way to phrase it, but you can see what that meant. That we're all doing the same things. And so it, it, uh, but that's why native dress, native language, native food, native this, everything's being wiped away because it's, it's going to be replaced with a one world culture. Right now, that one world culture is not inspiring, but eventually it may be better. But see how much easier it is because it's one world culture? When we took, uh, when Sherjo came over here to visit with Narayani, um, Sherjo is Indian, um, but he's he's a he's a, a global citizen. He knew he knows more about aspects of American pop culture, literature, music, television, uh, movies than I have ever known. He and his brother just grew up with this wholly westernized point of view. He's whatever he's thirty or something like that. But he just knows all about our, our culture, our, our modern culture in ways that I dropped out of it and I didn't follow it at all. But way over where he was, he was doing that. But what that results in is that he can transition over to America and he's perfectly at home here. It feels like home to him. And so that, look at the implications of that. This is how we end war. This is how we end sectarianism. This is how we end race hatred is people begin to have the same experiences instead of having really, they also have the same experiences with the same understanding behind it. So, um, the differences between science and religion are being perceived less and less as absolute. Church dogmas, of which a prime example is the Christian trinity, are no longer so tightly packaged as to exclude any possibility of a broader, more universal explanation. Can the father really be a human figure, like that bearded creator whom Michelangelo depicted on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel? Can the son really be someone who lived only 33 years on this little mud ball of a planet in a universe so vast as to be no longer conceivable? And can the Holy Ghost really be, as I've seen it depicted, another young man, seated reposefully on a stone wall. <laughs> and again, it's too droll to take seriously. Mahatma Gandhi, by means of the song Ram Dun, popularized the concept in India that Ishwara, a Hindu name for God, and Allah, the Muslim name, are appellations for the same supreme deity. Paramahansa Yogananda showed that the Christian trinity has its counterpart in the Hindu term Om Tat Sat, He explained that that both stand for cosmic realities. A growing number of people today are finding it absurd to think that a universe containing at least 100 billion galaxies, each one with some 100 billion stars, can have been brought into existence by an anthropomorphic deity. So all of this is laying the groundwork for Master's teachings. All of these things are making it possible. Everywhere the question is asked, Isn't it possible that every religion worships the same God and aspires to the same truths? No longer is there a general willingness to accept 
um, what was long held as the justification for all dogmas. It ought to be true, therefore it must be true. The elegance of a theory has ceased to be its supreme justification. The question asked increasingly is, does it work? And does it work is almost the mantra of America. And masters coming to do self-realization, to launch self-realization in America, was because of that word practical. He said, Americans need a practical religion. And Americans, first and foremost, asked, does it work? Because, and this is the interest, an interesting fact of our culture, which I, I had no understanding of until I traveled, which I didn't do until I was in my 30s, first to uh, Florence and then later to India. But I remember Florence was where I first noticed it, how proud the Florentines were that Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci and other great artists had lived in their city and they, they, um, they rode on that. They felt it gave them some um, significance. And I was conscious of the fact that because America had, has no, no history, and what little history there was, which was the people that we found here, we just eliminated them. We didn't respect them, and then we eliminated them. So everything that we can claim to give us worth, we have to do it now. And, and our whole way of looking, we, we can't look backwards because there's nothing to look to. We can only look forward. And when I went to India, of course, it was infinitely more, more, even more. You know, everything is looking backwards both for glory and for explanations. Swamiji talked about the benefit of the computer age in India and how it's breaking that backward-looking tendency because you can't look back. With all of the new technology coming in, there's no way to look back to understand how to use it. You can only look forward. So it's, it's shifting. But it's that riding on the glory of your, uh, and the, the pride and the sense of identification and achievement to me, it was just so incomprehensible how a person living in Florence in now could actually think it made them better because Michelangelo had lived there. I just, it, I'm so American, I just couldn't even think about it. And so when Master, in the great cosmic scheme of things, needed a place to start self-realization, which in its, you know, to its core, it's egalitarian, to its core, it's just about you and your consciousness. It has nothing to do with caste, tradition, culture, previous accomplishments. It's just you. And the only question is, does it work? And that's, all, that's what we ask. And that is a characteristic of Dwapara Yuga. We're questioning a priori assumptions. We're not just taking dogmas and theologies. We understand that it's about individual enlightenment. The Dwapara Yuga is an emphasis on the individual, not an aristocratic society where there's all these, all of these characteristics. America is the Dwapara Yuga country. And that's where Master came. It's California even, because that's the place. That was, when I read all this the first time, I said to Swami, did the Masters found America? It seems like America was set up to be the launching point for Master's self-realization, which is the... Is the um, Swamiji has expressed many times it's, the, it's going to be the understanding of the future. These are long rhythms. I said the founding of America it was a very important part of Master's mission. It seems probable that some, at least some uh, 
aspect of this ray was uh, involved in making America happen. Um, Swamiji has often commented, when, when I actually asked him that, he, he acknowledged it as a reasonable idea. And then it was, a, it was, just, it was very interesting because later on a group of us were sitting at the dinner table and he basically put it this way. Asha feels that, you, you know, I think even, I think he said Asha feels that she was involved. And it was sort of like, isn't that interesting? I think I had said it to him that way too, that I identified with it, because I'd been studying it at that point. But he never commented more than that. He just said, well, it seems self-evident. But he, he never filled it out. I really wanted him to fill it out. But here is an interesting and just delightful fact, and we'll close on this fact. Swami Kriyananda, as you know, was Alfonso X in Spain, the son of Ferdinand the Wise, that was the incarnation that um, Master referred to, an incarnation in which the Moors were pushed back from Spain in order to preserve uh, the Catholic faith. I think that's mentioned here. And Alfonso subsequently developed a system of law that b- became used there, the same as he had done when he was Henry. Henry also established a system of law. And the, the Magna Carta... Which, became, which was involved in the Declaration of Independence was drawn from the work that Henry started. And when he was Alfonso X, he also systematized things and made laws and so on like that. And then when the Spanish came to the New World in the area of the Southwest and in Texas, they brought the model of Spanish law, which was recognized as having been the work of Alfonso X, And when the Southwest became part of the United States and all of that, there is a portrait of Alfonso X in the House of Representatives of the United States of America. Yes, because of the role that the Spanish law played in the development of that part of the country. There's like 30 30 portraits or something that they put there of famous and influential historical figures. And one of them is Swami Kriyananda. (laughs) It was just like, that was a, it's that word, our, a woo-woo moment. Yeah. Oh, that was, I just thought that was so neat. Okay, so that's that whole story. Anything else for tonight before we stop? We are in the middle of 40. We're only at the beginning of Dwapara. We'll get out of the yugas. We'll probably get out of the yugas next week. Okay, it's a very long story, but it's worth, it's worth it. If anybody in the room or watching this has not read The Yugas by Selby and Steinmetz, you should. It's a great book. Fascinating. Okay, that's it.